Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. One of the things the NGOs have done really well in East Timor is to get together and to say, we're not competing here to do the same thing in the same village. We need to make sure that we've actually got a coherent strategy across the country. I would argue that the definition of community development is enabling people to have choice and control over their lives, and yet a lot of projects and programs you look at, by their definition, can't offer choice. If you're an NGO that has a water and sanitation program, you can't go into a community and say, what is your priority? What do you want? Even within that, if you're upfront about saying, this is the scope of what we can offer, which of this works for you and where would you like those taps? There needs to be more information given during those processes of giving people choice. In this episode of Ear to Asia, we discuss water and sanitation in Timor-Leste, two decades after the end of Indonesia's brutal annexation. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialists at the University of Melbourne. In Ear to Asia, we talk with Asia researchers about the issues behind the news in a region that is rapidly changing the world. In 2002, the people of East Timor found themselves living in a sovereign nation, free of foreign control for the first time since the Portuguese colonised the territory in the 16th century. Only days after the Portuguese left East Timor in 1975, Indonesia moved in, declaring East Timor its 27th province a year later. Indonesia's occupation was marked by brutality and bloodshed, But under pressure from the international community, the people of East Timor or Timor-Leste won their independence in 1999 and became the Democratic Republic of Timor-Leste in 2002. While the newly minted republic is sitting atop a sea of natural gas, a long-standing maritime boundary dispute with Australia has until recently prevented the gas fields and the Timor Sea from being developed, depriving the impoverished nation of much-needed revenue. Against this background, Timor-Leste is committed to the United Nations Millennial Development Goals that, among other important development aims, seek to improve access to fresh water and sanitation for its citizens, with the potential to vastly improve their lives. But as we'll hear in this episode of Ear to Asia, the road to reliable water supplies and sanitation in young and developing countries like Timor-Leste can be a major undertaking, with considerable social and economic impediments, not just technical ones, to a successful outcome. With us are two researchers who have spent a lot of time on the ground in East Timor, Dr Kate Neely, an international development specialist from the Melbourne School of Government, and Naomi Francis, a public health expert from the Nossel Institute for Global Health. Kate and Naomi, welcome to Ear to Asia. Hi, Ali. Thank you. Thanks, Ali. Let's start, uh, I guess, by drawing a picture of Timor-Leste. It's half the island of Timor. It's just 700 kilometres northwest of Darwin. Kate, what's it like? Well, as you say, it's half an island. It's very rural. It's a wet, dry tropic, so a bit like you would experience in Darwin. You have six months of rainy season and six months of very dry season. You have amazing people, incredible culture, and a really a growing optimism about their future. Naomi, it's tiny, isn't it? Both in population and in sheer geographic terms compared to what is around it. That's right. You could probably fit about seven Timor-Lests into Tasmania, I think, or maybe more. Yeah, it's small. And what's so striking about it is that it's so high as well. So you've got mountains that rise directly out of the sea. 
So in that sense, it's different from Australia's landmass. And that makes for a really interesting topography and geography. Kate, you, you mentioned there that it's it's rural. There's, I think, just shy of 1.3 million people who live in Timor-Leste. How evenly is that spread through the country? So about 30% of the population live in Dili, the city, the capital city, and there are a few other smaller urban areas, but they're not very big. We're talking, you know, a few thousand people in each of those. And so you've got 70% of the population, so more than 700,000 people living in very small villages that might be only sort of 20 or 30 houses. Is that changing at all? Are we seeing a migration towards the more urban areas? Yeah, we're, we're absolutely seeing a migration of especially younger people out of the villages where their parents are subsistence farming or growing coffee. Um, and those young people are moving into the city to go to high school and university. And Naomi, that means a different dynamic, doesn't it, when you're looking at, at the development of a relatively new country? Absolutely, because it's those young people that provide the income and also the, the physical labour to do a lot of the work that's required to improve water and sanitation in, in those remote areas. How developed is East Timor? now. Yeah, look, one of the ways that the World Health Organization defines poverty in particular is that if you're living in a house with a dirt floor, you're probably at about the lowest poverty level possible. And a lot of people in East Timor are still in that situation. So in every village of 20 houses, at least five of them would still have a dirt floor. I think officially, uh, under the World Population Review, 40% of the population officially live below the poverty line, but there'd be many others who would be subsistence agriculture that is their only form of income? Yeah, um, and that means that most people are living with less than $50 US per month. On the positive side, it's a very young country, isn't it? Yes. One of the youngest, yeah. They've called it the youth bulge because of of the history. You've got a lot of the old people sort of died in Indonesian times. As you mentioned earlier, it's quite brutal. Um, And so young people have had babies very quickly. And and so the population has grown. um, I think it's one of the highest percentage of people under 30 in any country in the world. So since 2002, when it became independent, how has the country sustained itself? Where does it make most of its money? It's it's one of the most resource-dependent countries in the world, isn't it? It is. So petroleum and gas followed quickly by coffee crops and then subsistence farming. So we're not talking vast resources? No, we're not. But we are talking big infrastructure challenges? Yes, both to extract those resources as well as just the resources you need to keep infrastructure projects to keep the country going, like roads and hospitals. Yeah, so things like power supply and water supply that we take very much for granted in Australia, you can't take for granted in East Timor, not even in the big cities. So um, Dili, for example, doesn't have a sewerage system, which, yeah, means that everybody is using some kind of a pit toilet or a septic in a city of 300,000 people. And that's growing, yeah. Yeah. And sitting on top of a very precious aquifer. So tell me about that. Let's deal with the urban area, Dili, and access to water. If pit toilets are the only way to go, how well constructed, how well thought out is the process for disposing of effluent? What are the challenges with that sort of system? It's incredibly challenging. Um, You've had a city that's grown very organically over a period of time. You've got individual households or small groups of households relying on water from an aquifer, so a natural aquifer underneath of Dili, which comes in three layers. So there's the top layer, which most people extract their water from for a little backyard well or something like that. And then there's a very deep layer, which is what the government extracts water from in order to circulate that around the city. 
that only 30% of households in Dili have water piped to their house. Everyone else would get it from a well, which is the upper level of the aquifer. 30% will use a public sandpipe and the rest will get it from a well, which is the upper aquifer. And Naomi, effluent and other forms of pollution, where do they go? Do they go into that upper level of the aquifer? I'm not so sure about urban areas. That's probably more Kate's Yeah, they, they absolutely do. Um, there's been a lot of work in the last year or so by groups like IPG, which is a geology part of the government in Timor-Leste. They've done water quality surveys and they're finding a lot of pollution in that upper aquifer. So even though in places like Dili there is better access to running water than there is in the rural areas, that's potentially a time bomb, isn't it? Yes, yes. The good news is that the aquifer flushes very quickly. In Australia, we're used to aquifers that take hundreds of millions of years to flush. In East Timor, because of the hot, wet tropic, you get a very quick flush of rain that pushes a lot of that pollution through about once a year. So what about rural areas, Naomi? So in terms of water and sanitation, most people, if they have what we call an improved water source, which is a source that's not, say, from from a river or a lake, people are either getting it from a gravity-fed system, which is from a spring, and that might be piped to a central location in the village where a lot of people can collect it from that one point, or there might be several points, or they're getting the water from a well or a bore well or a borehole through a, a hand pump, for example. Very few people have an electric pump. Um, so well, they not, have an unreliable power supply, I imagine. That's right, or no power supply, yeah. And is that water generally clean? Um, if it's from either of those two sources, so from a spring or from a well, then yes, it is generally clean when it comes out. There's questions about once it's taken out of the ground or from the pump, uh, when it's transported back to people's houses, there's all sorts of room there for, for contamination. But when it first comes out, it's clean. And do rural people, indeed city people as well, do people boil their water? Yes. In remote areas, it's much harder to boil water because of the lack of power, and so everything needs to be done with a fire. I've seen some interventions where people are using plastic bottles and putting water out in the sun as a form of UV treatment. Does that work? It does work if you do it properly. You have to leave them in the bottles for a certain amount of time. You need to have the bottles. You need to keep the bottles, store them. So there's all these points along the way where that process can be disrupted. So, yeah, maintaining quality or purifying water in remote areas is really challenging and it's often not adhered to. Often not adhered to. But what is the level of education or understanding about the quality of water available in rural areas and the risks that that compose? Is the population generally aware? I don't have statistics on people's awareness or their knowledge about the safety of water. I think a lot of people assume that water that's coming out of a well or a spring is clean. There's probably quite a lot of understanding about the fact that it can get contaminated along the way. But when you're talking about human behaviour change or health behaviour, often it's not what you know that counts. Even though people know that it's potentially contaminated is not enough for them to change their behaviour around it or to adhere to a particular behaviour around it because there's habit, there's convenience, uh, there's competing priorities. Same with everyone around the world with any kind of health behaviour. Same in the in the urban areas. Yeah, absolutely. So people in Dili certainly start to understand that separating your well in your backyard from your toilet pit is quite important. But if you don't have the opportunity to do that or you don't have the time or the money and the resources, then you can't do it. So we talked about sanitation and pit toilets in urban areas like Dili. In rural areas, Naomi? Um, a lot of people are open defecating, so going into the bush or into a river or the ocean nearby. The next level up from that is a simple pit latrine 
and that's just a, a hole in the ground and sometimes there'll be a, a branch or a piece of wood across the top to squat over and then there are various improvements on that. So in some places you have a porcelain squatting plate that sits on top or a plastic one which is left over from Indonesian times or there's all sorts of homemade versions Sometimes those designs are a direct pit and sometimes there's an offset pit, which means that people can turn that toilet into a poor flush latrine, which means you can essentially flush water down. You have a water seal, which means that it doesn't smell. It also means that it's easier to wash yourself after defecating, which is the way the Timorese prefer to clean themselves after defecating. And so that poor flush latrine or a, or a latrine that uses water is much more popular than the direct pit latrine. Can we just, I suppose, explore that a little more? Open defecation, is it as simple as, a, as an outsider, someone who lives in the developed world? You might look at that and say, well, it's simply because there is no other option. Is it as simple as that? No, in short. <laughs> the traditional response to dealing with open defecation has been motivated by that understanding of it. For many, many decades, the response was to build toilets. The assumption was, well, people are too poor, or they don't know how to build toilets, and so let's give them toilets. And you can go around all sorts of different places in the world and see toilet graveyards everywhere. I've seen several in Timor Leste. I'm sure Kate has as well. Yep, I've seen toilets being used for chickens to roost in. I've seen toilets being used for pig sheds, all sorts of different things. The toilet bowl makes a great fireplace and, and the bowl itself is a great place to set a pot so lots of people cook on them. Sometimes they store animal feces in them to dry it out to be used as fuel. So there's all sorts of great uses for a toilet other than its intended purpose. So, yeah, this assumption that people aren't using toilets because they don't have the money or know how to use them is a lot of the times not the only reason. There's a whole other range of reasons for why people don't use toilets. It Kate, sort, of, sort of becomes that necessary but not sufficient exactly. argument. Yes. That you you yeah. need the toilet but you also need education around behaviour change, you need behaviour change, you need good reasons to do that and a better understanding of, of health and health impacts. So talk me through that, given that we make such assumptions in the developed world. If I've got an option of a private toilet in, you know, not too far from my house, why would I do that rather than walk out into a field? What's the thought process? What are the drivers that you need to change in order to change behaviour? There are so many. Actually, I would disagree with Kate that the education about the health impacts is key. I think it's part of the suite of tools that you use. But for example, in the communities that I studied, I did a before and after study of a particular intervention that an international NGO was doing there to improve sanitation. And beforehand, I found that almost it was 90 to 100% new the health impacts of open defecation. And that didn't change throughout the study, even though there were elements of that intervention that were focused on educating people about the health impacts of open defecation. There wasn't really one thing that was sticking out as a motivation for people starting to building and using toilets, but some of the things that came out were that having a toilet means that you can defecate privately, that it's a sign of modernisation. So this is what people in, in Dili do or this is what people in Australia do and I want to do that too. Uh, comfort was another reason. And for a lot of people, simply being told that they needed to build a toilet was another reason. So there's a whole lot of different reasons why people will choose to use a private toilet rather than go in the bush. They're the positive things that yeah. make someone change behaviour. What uh, stops people changing behaviour? So you sit there and, as you said, most people understand the health benefits, so they get that. They yeah. can see that it's private because yeah. that's perfectly obvious. Mm -hmm. What are the, the negative drivers? So they'd be the other sides of those factors. So as soon as a toilet becomes uncomfortable 
a pit latrine. Anyone who's been to a national park in Australia <laughs> knows what I'm talking about. If it's dark, if it smells, if there's flies, if there's a very deep hole, that's really scary for children. Sometimes access is an issue for, say, pregnant women or very old people or people with other sort of mobility issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that can be a problem. Sometimes it's just that it's a long way from the house and yeah. it's dark and it's easier to go and, and have your dump behind the house exactly. um, in the middle of the night. And that's that's universal. I'll put my hand up and say that I've gone in the bush instead of using a, a really nasty a composting toilet, toilet <laughs> in a national park because it's been so so rank, basically. And you're not the only one. We all know that. No, 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 that's right. But I mean, I think it's really important to stress that this idea that someone would choose not to use a toilet is not particular to to people in low-income settings. It's a, it's a universal thing. You're listening to Ear to Asia, a podcast from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by International Development Specialist Dr Kate Neely and Public Health Researcher Naomi Francis. We're discussing the state of water supply and sanitation in Timor-Leste. And you mentioned, uh, Naomi, earlier NGOs. Can we have a little look at the the role of government and the role of NGOs in Timor-Leste when it comes to sanitation and water? Kate, how, I suppose, is there a single government department that oversees this entire program to improve sanitation? It seems to be split between a couple of government departments. So you've got a government department that's in charge of infrastructure, another one that's in charge of water and sanitation. So between them and the finance department, there's a lot of sort of mixing of who's responsible for what in terms of government. And government programs, I mean, is is this a very high priority? That's a really good question. There was an election in May and so there's quite a new government implemented at the Prime Minister, Tormatan Ruak. Before the election, we're certainly talking about grassroots development, so very much focused on what to do for rural people that will help them to develop their own communities. Whether or not that translates over a period of time with a new ministry and, and those sorts of things is you know, yet to be seen. This is one of the challenges, though, isn't it, that effectively, at least for the last 12 months in Timor-Leste, I mean, government has sort of been on hold, hasn't it? There was a minority government that failed and then waiting for new new elections. So is there optimism now that their momentum will get back into the system? Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of optimism. There's a, a draft policy for uh, specifically around urban water and sanitation. If that draft policy gets through the parliament now, then things will actually start to change. And I'm hoping they'll change quite rapidly. UNICEF, the Asian Development Bank and a few other organisations are really starting to get on board and say, look, certainly in the cities there is an issue which isn't being looked at. Rural water supply and rural sanitation have been something that have been focused on by a lot of the non-government organisations for a long time in East Timor, urban water and sanitation very much has been ignored. So it'll be good to see that changing. You were there as an election observer in these most recent elections uh, in May and you first went to Timor-Leste the year it became uh, an independent country. How much change have you seen in that time? And I guess also it's had such a turbulent past as a very small and, and young country. And that, to an extent, is borne out in the poverty that you see through the nation. How much change have you seen and and how sustainable do you now think the democratic process is in Timor-Leste? The change I've seen has been quite significant. When I first went to Dili, I actually went as a tourist. I I was living in Darwin and people said, oh, Timor needs tourism. So I wandered over and thought, you know, oh, Timor's not really ready for tourism. But it was a really good experience. 
having said that, there was still a lot of people with guns. There was the UN, there were young men with guns. It was very normal that people had guns and it was very normal that people looked quite nervous. And, you know, if, if there was a loud noise, people would sort of jump. When I went back in 2012, all of that had changed. Delhi had grown into a sizable city. There was a, a middle class developing of, of East Timorese people, which is fantastic to see. There was just a lot more optimism. Clearly, people were spending money and, and they had a sense of the country developing. That's been really good to see. I think democracy, from election observing, certainly the elections went very smoothly. There was very little violence. It looks like it's happening really well. And Naomi, you first went to Timor-Leste in 2012. I guess for many years, and certainly by the time you got there, NGOs were fairly well entrenched, weren't they? Yeah, definitely. So in that period, just after independence, there was a large influx of NGOs who came in to assist with various different aspects. And in the water and sanitation area? Yeah. Water Aid has a key role in Timor, as does Plan. Plan, World Vision. World Vision, Oxfam. The World Bank certainly did yep. quite early in the 2000s. Yep. So you can look at that and you can say, so we've had 16 years, we've had countless, really, numbers of NGOs. We've probably had quite a lot of money spent. Yep. Why is the situation not better? I think a lot of people ask that question about Timor because it's physically small. Population-wise, it's quite small. It's not India. I think because it's such a complex environment. Partly because of its history. I mean, there was Portuguese occupation and a very violent occupation by Indonesia. Time-wise, it hasn't been that long since independence. You've both come to the conclusion that it's not so much about the engineering and the money and the specifics. It's about the psychology and the community, which you've learned from your experience there. Is that part of the problem? Is that the wrong approach has been taken? I think it's part of the solution, actually. Psychology is part of it. Leadership is part of it. Trust is a big part of it, I think. So when you go into communities, and I've only observed a few interventions conducted mostly by NGOs, a big part of it is establishing a relationship and trust with the community, which makes a lot of sense because they've been stuffed around, basically, historically. I think um, one of the things the NGOs have done really well in East Timor is to get together and to say, we're not competing here to do yeah. the same thing in the same village. We need to make sure that we've actually got a coherent strategy across the country. Yeah. I think that's been really good. I think one of the things I would add to what Naomi was saying is that people need a lot of choice. We all know that we like to be able to make our own decisions and that that's a really useful thing in our own lives. And sometimes what happens with NGOs is that things are inflicted on people. It's like, you need a water system, this is one you're going to have, you need a toilet, go yep. and dig a toilet, as opposed to saying, well, what is it that is actually going to work for you in this context, in this place? And I think this is a global issue that in development, people are not often given a lot of choice and a lot of freedom to say, well, this is what we want and this is how we can contribute to getting that. Part of that, though, is many NGOs, they have uh, performance indicators, if you like. I mean, people fund them and then at least you yep. know that they build so many toilets and so many water systems. Everyone is in a really tricky situation. As you say, NGOs, they're beholden by donors. National governments are, are beholden by their resource restrictions and also international watchdogs as well. So everyone is in a tricky bind. And because I think of what you're talking about, Kate, the nature of community development, I would argue that the definition of community development is enabling people to have choice and control over their lives. And yet a lot of projects and programs you look at by their definition, can't offer choice. 
So, for example, if you're an NGO that has a, a water and sanitation program, you can't go into a community and say, what is your priority? What do you want? Because their priority might be a road and you're a water and sanitation organisation. But you can I, go I would, in and say, where do you want the tap? Even within that, if you're upfront about saying, this is the scope of what we can offer, which of this works for you and where would you like those taps? And to some degree that happens and to some degree I think yeah. people don't quite understand always when they're mapping out what the taps will look like and things like that. So I think there needs to be more information given during those processes of giving people choice. Is that changing? When I talk to NGOs in Timor-Leste, what they're telling me is they're starting to be much more integrated. So the Red Cross in Timor-Leste is looking at very integrated village-wide programs rather than just saying we're doing water and sanitation. They're, yeah. they're doing water and sanitation and they're doing youth programs and they're doing roads and they're doing um, livelihoods and yeah. education, all sort of mixed together rather than separating out one thing. The groups that are just doing one thing are starting to look much more at, well, how does a community manage this water resource so that the pipes don't get broken or so that the tabs get fixed when they Mm. need to be fixed? How do they know how much water they've got in that big concrete tank? Those sorts of things. So it is changing, yes. So is the gold standard uh, community consultation, community choice, community involvement, if there's no one-size-fits-all approach, is that the bottom line for making a difference? Well, community-based water supply, community-managed water supply is one way of doing things. But if you've got a government that's capable of actually providing town-supplied water that's reliable and that's clean, then that's a, a much better option. We wouldn't expect people in Australia, for example, to volunteer their time to keep the water supply running. And so the gold standard is clearly something where everybody has a reliable supply and it's clean and it's at the house. But how realistic is that in, in Timor, where 70% of the population is in rural areas and where the government has huge numbers of competing infrastructure projects. I mean, I note that even their own targets for access to water, I think it's 87% for access to clean water supply and 76% for access to sanitation by 2020. That, of course, is not that far away, but I mean, they're trying to be realistic, I guess, in what they're promising. Probably in the short term, this is the realistic approach. I think in the long term, given the size of the country, the ultimate goal should be centralised systems, centralised sanitation systems and centralised water systems. And I say that because that's what I live in and that's the system that I see working. Yeah, if you think about a two-year-old dying of a diarrheal disease that they should never have gotten in the first place, we're looking for systems that will stop that. What's realistic in the very, very short term is community-based management with really, really good support from sort of a local government provider or a local actual independent provider, someone who, who is getting money to make sure those systems keep going. And the government's actually working quite strongly towards that. For example, in sanitation in rural areas, just before I left, they were piloting a system where they had district-level sanitarians, they called them. They were overseeing community-led sanitation interventions in villages. Those were implemented either by government staff or by NGO staff, and so there was a really good coordinated approach that Kate was talking about before between government and NGOs, and that's both local NGOs and international NGOs, to make sure that that happened. But the job of the sanitarian was to oversee this process and to provide ongoing support to those communities once the initial implementers had left. 
Because that follow-up is really important, isn't it? Extremely. I mean, you go in and help a community, but then you maybe never go back. And the NGOs, again, have recognised that. In a lot of countries, not just in East Timor, and they'll have someone who goes back over a period of time. Now, a few years ago, that period was two years, and now I think most of them have extended that to three years of having people coming back and saying, how's it going? What are the gaps? What do we need to fix? And East Timor certainly has done a really good job of data collection. So they're actually collecting a database of whose water's working and whose water's not. And eventually that will be quite useful for government to be providing support as well. It's really important to partner with government for that because NGOs work on finite funding cycles and so to have ongoing follow-up, you need to be tied in with whoever is there consistently. And we talked about the competing priorities for the new government in Timor-Leste. The long-running dispute with Australia over maritime borders has now been resolved. We're yet to see what benefits that brings to Timor-Leste. But does it give more optimism for the future? I mean, resources are everything to a government trying to build infrastructure. Yeah, whether that translates into the sort of infrastructure that certainly Naomi and I would like to be seeing happening um, is a question. So there's still power infrastructure that needs to go in across the country. There's water, there's sanitation, there's roads, there's hospitals, there's schools. In fact, probably even training people for hospitals and schools is even more important than the physical infrastructure. Um, So there's there's a lot of work still to be done. So, yeah, what the government does with that money is another question. But are you optimistic that the path has been set? I I intimated before, why is it that there's been so many people trying to make an effort and so little progress made? But, Naomi, as you pointed out, 16 years is actually not very long when you look at the history of this country. Is the trajectory now right? Oh, absolutely. I think the trajectory is right, definitely. And the Timor Sea dispute resolution is a great sign of that, that Timor is able to advocate for itself as a nation. That's fantastic. And, you know, as a country, it's got some really good policy that we don't see in Australia. So policies around gender balance in the parliament. So a third of East Timor-less parliamentarians are now female. There are all sorts of things like that happening that, that will change the trajectory of the country as those women have stronger voices, that sort of thing. Dr. Kate Neely and Naomi Francis, thank you very much. And uh, I like your projections. We'll take them. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Ali. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud or the Google Podcasts app. And it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 13th of June, 2018. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Edoasia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.